everyone, and welcome to episode 21 of the Healthcare Hub podcast. I am here with my co-host, Abhinav. How are you doing today, Abhinav? I'm doing great. Really excited to get this one started on this Thanksgiving long weekend. Yes, what a beautiful weekend we have off here, long weekend, and we're going to take some time here to talk about pharma. Our guest today is Philippe LeBlanc. He's formerly of Shire, Takeda, and Paladin Labs in the pharmaceutical industry, and he's now founded Open Huddle, a media agency focused on delivering strategic marketing campaigns for the healthcare industry. And before we jump into that interview, Abhinav is going to start us off by talking about the global pharmaceutical supply chain, giving us a little bit of info there. And so without further ado, let's just jump right into it. Currently working at the Hospital for Sick Children, I had the chance to speak to rare disease specialists who mentioned some of the innovative drugs they needed to treat children. Some of these drugs might be so infrequently used that they're only sourced by one company in one part of the world. This made me think more about where our drugs come from. When we buy fruits at the grocery store, we tend to be interested in where in the world these fruits might have been grown. I mean, we will be ingesting them, so that might be something good to know. But what about our drugs? Where do they come from before we pick them up at our local retail pharmacy? What are the supply chains and operations involved in converting raw materials to a finished good or product that can be given safely to patients? Well, first of all, it's important to note that the pharmaceutical industry affects countries and economies around the world. As the pharmaceutical product products contribute to a significant number of exports, global sales for exported drugs and medicines totaled $392 billion in 2019, with the top three countries for exports including Germany, Switzerland, and Netherlands. Canada happens to be the seventh largest exporters for pharmaceuticals, but still relies on overseas supply to meet 68% of local demand. The pharmaceutical manufacturing supply chain involves two main stages. The first is the production of active pharmaceutical ingredients, or APIs. These are the key components of a drug which produce the clinical effect. Such production can be chemically intensive, involving reactors for drug substance manufacturing and large production plants. Earlier, pharma companies uh, made and formulated the API and medicines in their home countries. But over the past few decades, many companies have outsourced their API manufacturing processes to Asia. Today, India and China are the largest API producing countries. The second stage is a physical process known as formulation production. Substances known as excipients are combined with APIs to turn a drug into a consumable form, such as a tablet, liquid, capsule, cream, or injectable product. Typically, pharmaceutical companies will buy large amounts of APIs in a powdered form, which is transported to another country for formulation production. So when you see a location for a drug manufacturing posted, it might not always be clear if this is the location where the final product was manufactured or whether the active pharmaceutical ingredient was produced. It is becoming increasingly hard for drug manufacturers in North America to source their APIs locally since labor and overhead costs in Asia are much lower and difficult to compete with. I thought this was interesting as it points to the interconnectedness of the global supply chain of pharmaceuticals. Being reliant on various countries for APIs was definitely realized over the pandemic as various countries, including Canada, created restrictions on drug exporting to meet local demand. Moving forward, I think a lot of pharmaceutical companies will begin to rethink their healthcare supply chains, uh, looking at more integrative technologies to realize cost efficiencies, improve transparency, and also increase safety standards. 
So overall, uh, Tyler, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, some very interesting scattering of information there, Abinab. You really covered a lot. And uh, yeah, I think that it's just a very interesting industry to separate those uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients from the pharmaceuticals themselves and just see where everything comes from along that line. So thank you for that deep dive, Abinav. After completing his bachelor's in marketing at Tech Montreal, Phil LeBlanc progressed through various leadership roles in the pharmaceutical and life sciences industry. After working at Paladin Labs for several years, Phil led as an associate director of the neuroscience business unit for Shire and the director of the immunology business unit at Takeda. Most recently, Phil founded Open Huddle, a media agency focused on delivering strategic marketing campaigns for the healthcare industry. Welcome to Healthcare Hub, Phil. We're really excited uh, to learn about your career insights and learning about your leadership at pharma. Well, thank you, Avinav, and uh, thank you, Tyler, for uh, having me on your podcast. Really uh, looking forward to it. Perfect. We're excited to get rolling here, and we're going to start right off at the start of your career, Phil. So you went to the Université de Montréal. Oh, that was a bad French pronunciation, but we're going to keep <laughs> rolling. Uh, you did a Bachelor's of Marketing there. And then you, uh, right out of there, you did a couple of years at Dare Foods, being a territory manager before moving into uh, pharmaceutical marketing with uh, Paladin Labs. So what was that journey like going from school to eventually ending up in pharma with, without much of a uh, heavy science background? Were you at all interested in science during school or, or what made you end up in pharma? So it's a great question, and, and especially this relates to a lot of people trying to figure out what they want to do. Uh, within their studies, but especially afterwards. So for me, is I had knowledge of my interest into the business world. So that's what I knew. And this is where SSA was, was perfect for me, where the first year, and I think it's still the case, still the format there, you get to um, study uh, in different fields. So including finance, including marketing and, and so on. So for me, this was perfect as I was still undecided um, in, and at the time it was 18, 19 when I, uh, when I was in the university. So basically that really, um, um, made my decision to study in marketing more obvious from the teachers that I've had from the projects and also the classes that I was able to attend. It really solidified my interest into marketing, which to this day, um, lives on, um, you know, 10 years, 15 years later. So, um, so after that, and to answer your second part of your question, um, the life sciences, right? Pharmaceuticals, this is something I was, you know, not aware of, have little knowledge, uh, especially as a career. Um, as you can see, and I think as you uh, uh, might have uh, glanced at within my, my LinkedIn profile, um, I, straight out of university, uh, I've gone into the food uh, industry. So um, knowledge and um, popular within Canada, not so much in the US. I've worked for Dare Foods uh, with uh, some of their famous products, including Whippets and, and Bear Paws. So um, really humble beginnings uh, there. And this is where I first heard about life sciences because especially as a sales rep, a lot of my colleagues were looking to make the jump to healthcare uh, for numerous reasons, um, the challenges, the, um, the benefits um, made it just a 
more interesting um, field uh, for certain people. And this is where it really got started. So from that point on, and also uh, from making the move from, from sales to marketing, I, I really went broad and sent my resumes to as many pharmaceutical companies as I could to just get a chance because it, this was a starting point for me. It was an entry within those types of industry, uh, businesses and companies. Um, and I was, I was uh, lucky enough to have one take a chance on me. That's awesome. And it's, it's cool that you kind of discovered that while in your first role and discovered the entire life sciences industry. For Tyler and I, we come with some of our background in life sciences. So we've definitely been there. But definitely one trend we see in our podcast is once someone joins pharma, they don't go back. This is the rest of their career is just always exciting, new things happening. So it's great to see that. Uh, during your time at Paladin, you worked in marketing, sales, uh, and product associate roles before you finally became a product manager. Uh, with all of those previous roles being a key cog in the umbrella of a product manager's responsibilities, what, uh, what other aspects of product management were you less familiar with that you really needed to get familiar and comfortable with quickly once you started that uh, product manager role? Uh, really good question, because knowing that you have an interest or um, want to do the work to get into this type of industry is just the beginning because once you're in it, it's, it's so vast. I mean, there's so many things that goes into um, producing and marketing uh, pharmaceutical products um, to, to little of my knowledge at the beginning. So for me, getting into marketing and having a really uh, junior position as a marketing coordinator, I got to learn that there were so many other departments and what I would suggest to a lot of your listeners, because I remember we talked about uh, the demographic of your listeners being, you know, uh, students and of your age, uh, is to do as much research as you can to make sure that, you know, perhaps this is the right decision uh, and to see the opportunities and the possibilities that are, um, are very um, numerous within this field. Uh, so, for example, um, the, the, the departments that I worked with uh, included finance, included market access, government affairs, um, and as well uh, sales, uh, working alongside marketing. And, and what was key as well with Paddle Labs, which um, their offices, and I know they're still uh, within uh, Montreal and doing quite well, uh, at the time was, was a, considered a small pharmaceutical company. So I mentioned that because it's the type of company where um, even a junior marketer was involved in a lot of the decisions, had an opportunity to be part of, of a lot of uh, crucial and important meetings, uh, really guiding the, uh, the future uh, of that company. Uh, not to say that, you know, it's or, or putting a, a bad name on larger uh, pharmaceutical corporation, which I've worked for as well, but uh, especially for a beginning, working for a smaller company uh, was definitely beneficial. Yeah, I was uh, just going to ask that next. I see that you went uh, a smaller company like Paladin right into the larger ones like Shire and Takeda. And obviously that changes your role. We've talked to guests in the past about how working at a smaller pharmaceutical company, much more hands-on uh, in the grander scheme of things than at a larger one. And uh, I personally, work, when I worked at a uh, pharma marketing agency, I worked with Paladin and Shire, and you could really see the contrast in how the marketing strategy for one product fits into the grand scheme of the whole organization. So I just wanted to ask next, I guess, when you're making a marketing strategy or trying to market a product, 
in a small pharma organization versus a large one? How does that, uh, you know, the strategy from the top down differ between those two sizes? Is it, is it more uh, like integrated in the fabric of the entire organization when you're in a smaller one? Or is it uh, a little bit more branched off when you're in a larger one? It's, uh, there's, there's a, a difference. In the end, you want perhaps your strategy, I mean, there's some fundamentals, right? What is the strategy for our pharmaceutical products? Uh, this should be similar uh, if you're doing it well, but where it differs is the resources that you have and the structure that is used to bring those plants to life. For Palin Labs, I mean, what was so interesting is you were really building it the way that you were you wanted and as well, you know, you were heavily involved within the strategic decisions, whereas larger companies, they tend to have a structured approach. Like they want their strategies to be similar from product to product. And there's numerous reasons for that, um, but it's definitely more uh, structured. You have more resources. So I've learned from both, like as a step, as a first step into strategic planning for pharma products, Paladin was great. And then afterwards, I continued to learn because of the experience and the larger scale of, of Shire and then um, Decada. Yeah, though, no, that's something interesting we've also seen on the podcast, kind of in very large pharmaceutical companies, this idea of pipelines, whether that's pipelines and development, a pipeline and marketing, it's very systematic flows. Uh, whereas working with a small company, more of an entrepreneurial environment, you get to learn so much in doing that. So that's that's great to hear again. Uh, we see that you did transition from a product manager role to a senior product manager. Uh, and in doing so, you also moved locations geographically from Montreal uh, to Lexington in Massachusetts. So previously on our episode with Amgen, we learned about some of the regulatory and marketing differences here in Canada compared to the States. Uh, what would you say are some of the biggest differences in working in pharma in the States uh, that you noticed? I mean, there's, yeah, there, there's, there's a lot. Um, lucky enough, I was, I worked for the same company and I stayed within the same um, treatment area, disease state, should I say. Um, so I had some uh, continuous um, work and knowledge that was transferable when I moved to, to Boston. Um, but the U.S. is just a, a larger scale. I mean, we hear this very often. Um, there's just larger population and, and the pharmaceutical market is, is a lot more developed in terms of uh, availability of, of medicines and, and so on. And, but looking at this from a marketing perspective, uh, what was very different is the uh, possibilities in terms of marketing to patients. So as, as you both, I assume, know, it's heavily regulated, not impossible, but heavily regulated within, uh, within Canada to detail directly to patients. So most of the efforts are done um, to the healthcare professional. In the U.S., it's more of a, depending, depending on the treatment, depending on uh, the product itself, it's more of a mix. To some extent, it will be even more um, targeted to the patients versus the healthcare professional if we find that the patient plays a, a bigger role within that decision um, and, and in terms of knowledge of the, their disease and also the solution that, that are provided to them. So that for me is the biggest difference. 
And then as well, for me, it was just an opportunity to do things at just a a much larger scale. So in terms of marketing budgets, although I was in the same company, uh, it was just another level, which, you know, gave me an opportunity to, um, to do some, some, some marketing tactics, strategically um, very similar, but tactically able to do just a lot more. So the same, uh, Tyler, you mentioned the agencies that you're working with. So imagine working on just now multiple agencies, more specialized agencies with the ability to do uh, a lot more digital work, potentially some TV work as well. Um, so the opportunities there and, and just to learn even more, which was one of the reasons why I wanted to move um, was, was possible uh, in Boston. Yeah, that's very interesting because you, you, you've had a lot of change throughout your career. You've gone different sizes of companies, different uh, different locations of companies, and then you also have worked in different clinical areas. So when you jump between those roles that are in different clinical areas, was there anything that drove you to those specific roles or was it just marketing is marketing? I'm going to go to this clinical area. Uh, well, we're marketing is the, the guiding line, right? So, so as long as I could continue to do what uh, was a passion or an interest of mine, I wanted to keep going. But at the same time, I, I do wanted to look and learn different things. So looking at Paladin, it was smaller scale products, tried to be very creative uh, with limited resources. And then when I jumped to Shire, it was, it, it was already larger scale. Even within uh, Canada, it was a business unit and also a, a treatment area where um, a lot more had to be done to raise awareness and to educate um, on the medicine as well. So all of these things were different. And then finally, I even got into rare disease where I saw a lot of interest and also uh, a growth of the industry within this specific area. So that guided me to uh, at least do some research and find an opportunity in terms of doing marketing in a very different way. So rare diseases have very few patients. They have very few uh, doctors that are even aware um, and afterwards even treat these types uh, of of diseases. So for me, um, as a last step in terms of uh, formal and and client side pharmaceutical marketing was very interesting and and, and just almost a necessary step within my career. Yeah, on that, building on that idea of uh, engagement and more uh, working directly with clients, we noticed that a lot of your work in pharma did revolve around stakeholder engagement with healthcare professionals. So what types of strategies did you really use in communicating healthcare products in clinical settings? So, so you're, you're totally right. So um, most of my uh, career uh, was uh, targeted to HCPs. I mean, Canada definitely influenced that. I did a little bit more of patient-targeted efforts when I moved to the U.S., but totally right in terms of the majority of my career has been to uh, to target HCPs. And this question, I mean, it's uh, I do want to answer it, but it depends on um, you know the disease state. It depends on the brand that I was working at the time, but everything always needs to be grounded in research which then leads to your strategy. So one of the exercise that some of my colleagues or other marketers either like or uh, can't wait that it's uh, over with is brand planning. So on a yearly basis, 
uh, the exercise of taking the time to look back at, you know, what's been done in industry, um, doing additional research and gathering different stakeholders around a table to see and think of uh, what can be done for the next year is one of the most important um, exercise that we can do as not only as a marketer, but really as a commercial team within a pharma uh, company. So again, not to avoid your question, but this is one way to really find what's going to work in terms of initiatives targeting HCPs. Um, otherwise, I could list a, a bunch of different ones, but, um, but it really depends on, on the disease state and also the, the brand you're working on. Maybe for the sake of the listeners, some of the interesting initiatives that I've worked on. Um, so uh, not going into the details of the product store or the disease state, we did use technology. So one of the examples is we wanted to bring HCPs into the shoes of the patients and we use virtual reality to do so. Now, this was a couple of years ago. Um, I want to say it was at least 10 years when we started looking into that. So it was very innovative at the time and especially new for uh, the pharma industry. So those are the type of initiative that um, I, I really got an interest in and actually, and, and eventually we'll get to that, but it really drove my interest into certain fields and certain areas of the business uh, because of using innovative approaches and also technology to educate, to raise awareness is really where I found success uh, within this business. So that there's obviously a lot of really cool technologies out there that, that can be incorporated with marketing like you just brought up. So obviously there's uh, a lot of regulations that get in the way of cool marketing initiatives from states coming into Canada. But do you see a lot of those interesting technologies making their way over to Canada? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that Canada is, 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 is behind in, in any case. It's, um, it often has to do with regulation. Um, but otherwise, in terms of technology, I've, I've seen it happen, and it's often things that we'll share across the border uh, when you have the same product, right? So if you have the same product, uh, I've often talked to either Canadian or uh, vice versa colleagues to just at least have a glance in terms of what they're doing, right? It's good because each team are doing so much research and more so much strategic work that you don't want to just kind of leave that to only one country. You want to be able to share those. So not regularly, but we would often, um, not, uh, not often, but we would have uh, at a specific time of the year opportunities to share those. So whether it's two countries or more from an international perspective, because some of these companies uh, do have international footprint, we get to learn from others, where especially when they're being successful with the different types of strategies and also uh, specific initiatives. Um, and, and this one specifically, the virtual reality is something that was done in Europe. So it wasn't born in the US, it was done in Europe. And then uh, we had to customize it to, uh, to the US population, same thing in Canada, but uh, inspired nonetheless by our European colleagues. You've talked a lot about the many multifaceted areas of adaptability that you need to be a product manager, changing marketing strategies, changing, uh, you know, figuring out strategies for different products. And there's a lot of uh, data you need to take into consideration when you're a product manager, the finances, the scientific validation, the marketing strategy. 
So when you become a product manager, take us through the day-to-day a little bit there. There's a lot to manage there. What, what does the product manager role entail in the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, it's, it's not a, that's a good point because it's not a simple one, right? It's not uh, strictly talking to agencies and, and creating lovely uh, ads uh, for, uh, for the pharma industry. It's, it's, it's a lot larger than that. So to think of it, there's no typical day and then that's, that's a great thing. But um, being a product manager, you're truly responsible. If your position is to be the lead, especially on a product, uh, you are responsible for that product, not only from a marketing perspective, but really commercial. And, and in some essence, it extends beyond that. Um, it's also a very collaborative work. Um, it, I've talked previously about the other departments, whether it's regulatory, quality, finance, sales, uh, market access, procurement, these are, and I'm, I apologize for if, if, if I have colleagues or, or previous colleagues that are listening and I'm not mentioning their, their field of expertise, but um, it, it's really highly collaborative work where it takes more than one person. But as a product manager, I would say you definitely have this lead um, and this responsibility to just ensure that uh, your product is doing as well as it's supposed to. And I'm, I'm saying well and in so many I mean it in so many different ways, whether it's uh, availability, um, pricing, um, um, education and so information associated with the product. Uh, it's a very complex role, but once one that is so interesting because of it. And I'll go back to the fact that it, you just get to do a lot, right? It's, that's why there's really no typical day and um, you get to work with so many people uh, within the company, outside of the company as well. Um, and, and, and for me and for part of my career, uh, I really, truly enjoyed it. Uh, on that note of kind of everything involved and encompasses product management in pharma, what would you say was really uh, helpful of having that strong marketing background in this role? Would you say that anyone with any type of business uh, kind of skills or say finance, accounting can be successful in a product manager role? Or is there something specific about marketing that makes someone a successful product manager? Um, it's not, it's not only marketers, like it, from, especially from a, from a um, educational point of view, it's, I've, I've seen different backgrounds come into this role. Um, I've seen finance, I've seen, um, I've seen obviously marketing, I've seen sales. Um, so to say that only marketers tend to get the roles of product manager, no. So, so the education is, is one background, but also it's what you've done early in your career to get to that specific responsibility. There needs to be something in there that shows that you're able to take on um, these different types of responsibility or flexible with the type of work you're able to do and this ability just to learn. Um, Cause it, it and, and this is what's so true about this industry. And I've heard it from other guests that you've had is you can continuously need to learn whether it's your product, your disease state, which is continuously evolving. Uh, you need to attend those conferences, read literature to stay up to date. Um, I would say those are really the, the, 
the main criterias um, to get into those roles. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, stress too much on your, your diploma, uh, but more in terms of what you've been able to show or demonstrate early in your career. Because let's look, look back, when Paladin Labs gave me a chance, I was definitely not the ideal candidate. I was a sales rep in a food company. I did have a marketing uh, bachelor degree, but nothing more than that. Um, I don't feel like I was a competitive contender, but I definitely showed that I wanted this. Like this was um, a, a role that I would have done, you know, almost anything for. And I, I definitely demonstrated through the process. Uh, whether it was, you know, the application, the references, and also the interview process um, is what I've demonstrated. And, and through my career as a manager and also looking to hire people, uh, I've definitely looked beyond studies there. It's an important part of it, um, but I've definitely looked beyond, uh, beyond that because it, it's not the only criteria or the main, even the main criteria in terms of uh, ensuring success within product management. So that's a, that's a beautiful story. That's a, a big journey of, you know, just making it through your career and growing and, and moving on to bigger roles. But as you climbed and really started reaching the peak, you uh, took a bit of a risk. You left the stable job in the pharmaceutical industry to start your own quest with uh, Open Huddle, which can be pretty daunting. So what motivated you to start your own venture there? And, and how did you attract the initial clients and get the ball rolling there? Oh, yeah, very good question. Um, so, so within that career, I was really able to pinpoint the moments and, and the specific projects that I truly enjoyed. I mean, a job is a job, but there's definitely some ups and downs and, and some parts of it that I enjoyed more than others. Um, I knew I wanted to stay within this industry. I knew it was something around marketing. And then I, with time, I was able to define a little bit more that looked like it was, it was digital. It was innovative. It was using technology. And often what would tend to happen is the work that I was doing with my own agencies, whether it was media, creative, and, and so on, was, uh, it was, it was a little bit of jealousy. It was almost the work that I wish I was, I would be doing, um, on their side versus um, some of the work that I was doing on mine. So, um, and on top of that, um, I always had this entrepreneur itch that, you know, was stuck with me for years. Um, always trying to figure out what it would be. Um, and, and, and I think it was you, Tyler, you used the, the term comfortable. I was getting, I was getting more and more comfortable within my, my career and my job. So it was, I was getting more difficult to, to make the, the, the switch or the move. So, but eventually I, I, I decided it, I, it was time. I was closer to that fine tune idea. It wasn't completely done, but I knew that I had to take it, this chance and it had to be, uh, which was at the time uh, last year, it had to be now because otherwise I don't think I would ever take it. Taking, taking a chance, you kind of recognize that your day-to-day -day might be looking very similar and many people wouldn't take the risk and start something new, but, but you did. But uh, on that note, we see that Open Huddle offers services in media planning, strategy, and analytics as some of their 
uh, core offerings. How did you come mm -hmm. up with the, these startups offerings or, or were these really areas and your own strengths that you developed during your time in pharma? So a couple of things, right? So, so I think at the center of it all, it's like, it's all well and good for you uh, if you're doing something you love, right? And it, it's going to show, it's going to be, uh, it's going to demonstrate in the quality of the work and the type of conversation you're going to have with potential clients. So that's important. But at the same time, you got to make sure that you offer something that people are going to want. So by doing that, you have to solve an issue. And, and when I looked at the market and the service that I was off that I was uh, receiving as a client, um, working on the, the client side of the industry, um, I was seeing that in, in certain uh, areas, I was receiving services, especially in the media landscape, that was not tailored to my industry, that was not specific, not strategic enough um, to, uh, to what I wish I had. So I really identified uh, an area, really a niche where uh, niche, um, sorry, uh, media services could be nothing more strategic, more close to what clients within the healthcare industry uh, needed and um, wish they had. So this really sparked the idea to confirm it. I did the research, I've done surveys, I've built ad boards as well. Um, with colleagues and people in the industry that really confirm this hypothesis. And then afterwards, um, just decided to take off and, and test it out in the real market. Do you guys have a focus on the particular areas of pharmaceutical marketing that you're most interested in? Is it like consumer marketing or um, educational programs for healthcare professionals? Or are you just overall strategy uh, figure out how to point them in the right direction. Well, I I like to be honest and frank with with people I work with. The industry that I know the most is the one I've been working in for the last you know fourteen years, and it's it's been healthcare, more specifically pharma. But not to say that you know I'm not able to help other people or other um, companies outside of the pharma industry itself. For example, I have a client, a startup that currently is working on modernizing PPE products, so personal protective equipment. So really within the healthcare space, talking to the same type of customers, in this case, um, healthcare professionals. So there's a lot of knowledge that I have that I can bring to a client like that. Um, and really for me as a starting point, working with them was great because I was starting off. This company was uh, in the same situation as well. So it was really a nice match when we got to initially um, start discussing a potential partnership, um, bringing a lot of the expertise and knowledge that I had to a startup found itself to be very beneficial. And at the same time, for them, they were a nice, uh, really an ideal client case for me uh, to get things started. That's great that uh, you kind of expanded a bit there and still in life sciences, I guess, with PPE, but uh, still using your skill sets wherever you can as you get started. That's, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. So what I kind of have a two part question here on open huddle looking as you come towards or the end of your first year. Uh, I think you're just over a year now with Open Huddle, if I'm correct. Uh, so what have been some of your greatest challenges uh, with starting up your own company? And two, what are you most excited for for the future of Open Huddle? 
Yeah, and then this is this is a place uh, and a question I'd like to be uh, really transparent about. When I started, and I think it happens for a lot of entrepreneurs. When I started Open Huddle, it was a um, consultancy uh, service that I was giving to healthcare agencies uh, within my industry. So to to claim that I was able to open my own agencies. Um, you know, the next day coming out of the client side, I think would have been premature. And this is why I had this stepping stone or this initial idea of consulting um, the other agencies that are currently doing it um, within the, uh, the healthcare uh, industry. So I've learned a lot. I was able to talk and work with different types of agencies. But in terms of the long-term um, view of that type of work, it was heavily project-based, which for some people, there's nothing wrong with it. But I've really found that I was able to bring a lot more when I had this longer-term longevity within the professional relationships. So this is why this uh, now approach to media services and, and really more of a long-term type of business relationship really just fits better with the open huddle culture and, and even my own. Would you have any advice for someone who maybe they're either mid-career and want to start something or coming out of their school and want to start something? Just advice for kicking things off and, and really the, the first step to, to getting that new venture rolling. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is where there's so many people giving advice. And uh, I mean, there's so many resources in terms of books, in terms of YouTube clips, and then motivational speakers that you can listen to, but I wouldn't listen to all of them. But there's some of it that is this sounds true, especially looking back at my experience. And the first advice is, if you think you have something, and you put in the work to research it and validate the idea, you need to do it. Like for, cause for me, it was, I didn't want to look back and have the regret of never knowing or never trying. So for me, it was, it was, it was not even a question. I had to do it. I just, it took longer for me to figure out what it was or how to specifically do it. But in the end I did it and I'm, I'm, I've never, I wouldn't change a thing. Like I'm so happy that I did it. And I'm still in, in the next following years are going to be also a lot of figuring out in terms of how to expand this, how to make this, you know, one of the best media agency within the healthcare space. Uh, but I'm just starting off, right? So I'm figuring out a lot of things. But if, if you know, the same itch in terms of entrepreneur, in terms of starting something that's your own, you're, you're identifying a problem within your industry, you got to go for it. Like I couldn't be more supportive for these types of individuals that, you know, take the risk, take a chance. Now with that said, make sure that, you know, there's, there's some support in terms of what you're doing, right? So for some people, it's, this is very difficult. You need, you know, some financial, um, support in terms of being able to, you know, live a couple of months, if not years without that salary coming in, because it's not going to come so easily and so quickly when you're starting things off. So to have this, and also it's financial, but it's also 
a supportive emotional support because it's tough. Like it's, it's a lot of work, but also it's a lot of um, effort that does not necessarily ensure fruition or success. So that, um, you know, uh, that a group of friends, your family, um, other entrepreneurs that you can talk to, for me, have been crucial and so necessary throughout, throughout the last year, the last 12 months. And even before then, before I actually pulled the plug, I was working on this. Like I was using nights and weekends to develop Open Huddle into what it is now. Um, those were all crucial. But if I have, yeah, two main pieces of advice is, is one, give it a go. Like if you truly believe it, um, take the plunge, right? Take the plunge and think of like, what's the worst thing that can happen, right? It's going back afterwards or tweaking this idea into something else is not the end of the world. You'll be so happy that you've tried, right? It's, that's the way I feel. And then the second part is just to make sure that this is not, you know, crazy uh, for you to do this or irresponsible, should I say, uh, to go ahead and, and, and do something like this. Now, now looking at you both, uh, I, I wish I would have done when I was younger, right? So it's, you know, hopefully you have some listeners that perhaps um, can relate. And if you're, um, I don't know if you, if you're still living with your parents or if, um, you know, you, you don't have those financial commitments like a house, a car and so on, you can find yourself a, a lot more flexible to do something like this. Um, cause I've seen a lot of people in their twenties, um, be, have a little bit of that Liberty, right. They don't have a family yet, so it's not as risky, but at the same time, it's not, uh, the end of the world, if you do, because I've seen others that have created agencies that have created companies that did have those families that did have those financial um, engagements that they had to, you know, uh, provide for. So um, all to say that everything's possible, but there's kind of that ideal spot or environment that you can be in to make this easier for you, should I say. Absolutely. I think that's really great advice. Uh, the idea of, I, I think one thing you really mentioned that's important to know is the uh, validating your ideas. Sometimes you'll have crazy ideas where you need to make sure uh, it's popular. And that's something we had to test out too when we started this podcast initially, see yeah. is there demand for this? Uh, and also something important and what I, what I really liked these mentions doing uh, as you selected your core offerings, you really pick things that you knew you enjoyed because you knew that if you enjoy, you'll do well. At it. And I think that's super important too for anyone in a startup. You have to be passionate about it, and then that's how you'll be uh, feel the reward of taking that risk uh, and getting out there. So we wish you so much luck in the future of Open Huddle. Uh, it's been great having you uh, on the show today. Thanks a lot for joining us. Well, thank you so much, and Abhinav and, and Tyler. I want to, I appreciate uh, your, your kind words and, and and really the support and giving me this opportunity. But I did want to mention what you guys are doing is pretty awesome as well. I mean, starting this podcast on top of your education and not only if it's beneficial for you both, uh, I think it's going to be beneficial as well for a lot of your listeners, right? That are trying to figure it out, that have this interest in healthcare. So all the conversation that you've had with very different types 
of, of people within the industry that I found so interesting, I think is going to bring a lot. So you guys should feel really good about what you're doing. And hopefully it's going to flourish into something um, really meaningful. Thanks so much, Phil. That means a lot. We really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for listening to episode 21 of the Healthcare Hub podcast. Thank you to Philip for joining us today, and we hope to see you in the next one.